Welcome to the Dr. Raj podcast with Dr. Raj Dasgupta, a show all about educating patients, students, and aspiring doctors about better patient care. Dr. Raj is a quadruple board certified physician and associate professor at the University of Southern California. He was a co-host of the TNT series, Chasing the Cure with Ann Curry, as well as a regular on the TV show, The Doctors. And now, here's our show. Hi, and welcome to the Dr. Raj podcast. What is this a podcast about? Well, it's about being yourself. It's about wellness. It's about health. And you know what? I'm going to make something up. It's also about being innovative. And why did I say that is because I got one of the coolest guests in the whole world today, mainly because he's my buddy. But no, he's super well accomplished. His name is Dr. Bon Koo. And before I introduce you to him, one of my routines is I got to read embarrassing, wonderful, big accomplishment things that he has done. So I got a little list here. I'm going to read this before we introduce him. So Dr. Bon Koo is a director of the Health Design Lab at Thomas Jefferson University, where he created the first design thinking program at a medical school. He is the Martin Robert Eldelson Professor of Medicine and Design, the Associate Dean for Health and Design, and a practicing emergency physician. His work towards redesigning healthcare has been featured in the New York Times, CNBC, Architecture Digest, and Fast Company. Dr. Ku has spoken at conferences, academic medical centers, and universities around the world, including SXSW, TED Talks, we'll talk about that during our podcast, Yale School of Management, the American Institute of Architects, and Singapore Design Week. Dr. Ku is the host of the Design Lab podcast, co-wrote the book Health Design Thinking, which we will also talk about with Ellen Lipton, and was a regular, I'm going to start tearing up right here, panelist on the primetime medical TV show, Chasing the Cure with Ann Curry. Now, he's got a bunch of awards, but he put just a couple of highlights because I made him do it. He's a humble guy. He got the uh, Philadelphia Business Journal Healthcare Innovator Award, the Cambridge Health Alliance Art of Healing Award. In 2019, the Philadelphia Inquirer winner for Influencer of Healthcare, the Excellence in Innovation. And then the last one he put down here is the one I'm really super jealous about because I kind of want this award. I think he made it up. It's called the Philadelphia Rad Guy of the Year. I don't think that's an award, but <laughs> with that being said, Dr. Bon Koo, thank you for being on the show. Raj, I'm so excited to be here. I love your podcast. True honor to be here. And that is a real award. And it's my favorite award because it's this cool conference I have in Philadelphia, the Rad Girl Conference, and only one dude gets an award every year. No way. Yeah. That's like the Greek system. Like you're like the king fraternity dude all of a sudden amongst everyone else. That's rad. All all women and women. And I was honored to be there and get the only award that's given out to a guy. Was there an actual plaque or trophy of some kind of like thing you could put on your shelf? Totally. I yeah. yes. It's in my lab. I love it. It's my it's my favorite award I've ever gotten. So does your wife try to throw that award away when, when you're not looking? Uh no, because it's in my lab, because I'm not sure throwing that. <laughs> All right. I did my research. So, you know, where did you go to college and what was your major in college and why did you pick it? 
I'm based here in Philadelphia, so I went to college at Penn, where I studied classical studies. So I did ancient Greek and Latin. And the reason why I did that is because I didn't like math and science that much. <laughs> okay. <laughs> you almost, you almost shook on your coffee there, right? there <laughs> I know it's not, right? I, I'm an Asian male. So my entire life, people thought I liked math or was good at math, but that's funny. It was tough. In my freshman year, I did really bad at math. And I, because you have to take calculus to get into medical school. Yeah. And I think I got like a C. Plus. And so my second semester, I took this like calculus class that was known as calculus for jocks. And then I got a B plus in it. So I was like, this is really not good. And I really did not like my pre-medical science classes. What I loved about classical studies is there was seminar based. It was really small classes, like 10 students there. I loved these ancient texts and being able to translate them from Latin and Greek. And that's what captured my imagination. It wasn't organic chemistry. Unlike you, well, Raj, probably. Oh. Well, don't stereotype me. Yes, we're part of the same Asian blood, but don't 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 stereotype me right there. <laughs> but this kind of like uh, leads into my next question. So, when did you actually decide that you actually want to become a doctor? And before you answer, let me just kind of parlay that with you're talking about being Asian. So, where did your parents come in to the influence of being a doctor, if any? My parents came into the influence probably when I was in utero. They're South Korean and they tell me this narrative. They came to the US so their son can go to an Ivy League school and become a doctor, like literally. So I was brainwashed to become a doctor. I've tried to resist my entire life. I've thought about everything from being a NFL football player to going <laughs> and getting a PhD in classics, right? And you know, you've seen me. I do not have the body of an NFL player. Like a water boy, maybe. A water boy. <laughs> <laughs> maybe a kicker. Maybe a kicker. So I always had in the back of my mind, I was probably going to go to medical school, but I think I got passionate about it when I started serving on some trips and being with doctors who were really meeting the needs of people. So I took a trip to El Salvador when I was in college, worked with a medical team there and volunteered at um, a place called Esperanza Health Center in North okay. Philadelphia that reached out to that reaches um, very vulnerable communities there. They're still in existence. And that was very informative in my life and said, hey, this is pretty cool. I get to enter into a field where I get to really meet the needs of people, then slowly start developing a love of medicine. But not until medical school and residency that I started developing that love, surprisingly, right? <laughs> So I did my research and I didn't know where one of my questions is like, it literally is right here is trip to El Salvador. I didn't know if that was med school or residency. That was in college. It was in college. So, so how does a you who doesn't want to just be a doctor because of your parents who's studying Greek and Latin decide I want to go to El Salvador and what exactly did you do there? It was like a medical mission trip. So I got to follow a okay. team that went down there. And I remember meeting, I think it was like a medical student from Yale and she, she was helping insisting in a surgery for cleft palate. And I thought that was so cool. She's so badass. I want to be like her. <laughs> and they were able in a short period of time, really meet the needs of people. And I love traveling. And that was very impactful. Um, it, it wasn't a semester or a quarter. Was it, no, like it, a, couple it was a weeks summer or something? It was a summer. 
and my wife, who was a college student back then, was on that trip. So maybe that that sparks some romantic interest there. I think. Isn't your wife a allergist? Yes, allergy immunology. So you never you never could change that past. Even if you develop a DeLorean, don't change that. You have to go to that trip because that's where you meet your wife. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> totally, totally. So you go to this trip. That was kind of like where you decide, I do want to go to med school. I do kind of want to be a doctor. And I get a lot of listeners who are med students, you know, a bunch of them. What was, and be honest, probably your worst subject or worst rotation in the medical school and then you could parlay that with your favorite and best subject or rotation. One of my favorite rotations was orthopedic surgery. I actually wanted to become an orthopedic surgeon. I just love the people in the program there. I had a surgeon that I worked with, Dr. Goodspeed, who was great. He used to be a, a wrestler. Okay. Uh, in college. And then he would okay. let me do all this stuff in the OR. And I thought it was so cool that you could, someone comes in with a broken bone, he's a trauma orthopedic surgeon. And then a couple of days later, they're able to walk. And it was just, it's, it was pretty, pretty remarkable. Um, my least favorite rotation, I don't mean to offend you, Raj, but it was oh. probably internal medicine because the pace Ouch. was just like, it was a little slow, you know, I was like up on the floors and you're, you know, you order labs in the morning, then you're chasing the labs all day after yeah. that sodium bag, get a calculated FINA. And then, then the rounds were so endless. They never ended. I was like, I was like, listen, I got to go. I want to go home. And this was before the days of, of the residency work hours. So, oh. Right. You know, I'm yeah. old, you know, and so rounds would take forever. And I just had no patience for rounds. I mean, <laughs> like four or five hour rounds, like post overnight shift. No, we, we do enjoy rounding. I mean, we can't believe there's an option. Like when I'm in the ICU, there's some morning rounds. Maybe I'll throw rounds for good measure in between. There's a nighttime rounds. Yeah, I can see where you can be a little frustrated with that. <laughs> <laughs> I have a short attention span. So rounds are very difficult for me. With that being said, let's go to some subjects, you know what I mean? Because, you know, you're kind of not really a calculus type of person, obviously the, the Greek and Latin. What subjects were your, your least favorites in med school? Almost all of them. The first <laughs> 1.5, two years of medical school, I hated. I just didn't like it. I loved anatomy. That was probably my only subject that I liked. But the rest, I thought, did not challenge me the way that my humanities classes challenge me because it was a rote memorization. Yeah. And I think now with a flip classroom model approach, you know, you're engaging in more an active process. Uh, if I had a teacher like you, Raj, I've seen some of your teaching, I would have loved that. And I think going to med school now would be a much more enjoyable experience because back then, our lectures weren't recorded by video. Yeah. And so we used to have scribes. And even with that, I did not attend class. <laughs> I just hated going to class. I thought it was so inefficient. And so I'd be trying to learn with these scribe notes because, you know, you all, you all chip in and <laughs> someone will take the notes and then you would photocopy a hundred copies for your classmates. <laughs> and I would study off those scribe notes. So now with video, I would never go to class and I would watch <laughs> that video at 2x speed. <laughs> One of the purpose of the Dr. Raj podcast is to encourage people to go to med school. You do know that, right? 
<laughs> no, I love being a doctor, but I think we need to redesign how medical school is taught the pedagogy of it, how we choose medical students, how we choose residents. Yes. Yes. I think we need to blow the system up. You love orthopedics, which is a little on the brutal side for me. <clears throat> you don't like internal medicine, and I won't hold that against you. Why emergency medicine? How did that become your decision? Great question. I like the pace of emergency medicine. I like the variety of cases. That's one reason why I didn't go to orthopedic surgery when it's following on sports medicine doc and he was doing ACL repairs all day long. I thought they were cool the first, you know, 20 times I watched him, but I don't want to do, do this a thousand times. And so the variety of cases, I knew I wanted to work in the urban area in a large city. And I like that you saw everything. And I, and I like the tools that we have in emergency medicine. It's, we're an advanced diagnostic imaging center. So if I want to get an MRI, CAT scan, ultrasound, I could get it like that. And I hated this thought of, I have to order a test. And I have to wait six hours, 12 hours or a day or a couple of days. No way. I want to get that test right now and try to figure out what's going on with the patient. Well, you know what? And God bless all my ER buddies out there. I don't know what I'll do without you, but you just kind of said the classic ER move, hand scan, baby. They come in. I don't know what's going on. Listen, Raj, I do not pan scan patients. I use evidence-based medical decision-making, okay? Despite what you internal medicine people think, okay? I actually Uh, did a year of internal medicine, by the way. Oh, wait a minute. So you actually matched in the IM and then you did a... Then you went to... No, no. So they have... I don't know how many more... They may not have any more of these programs, but not all emergency medicine programs are categorical. I did a um, a prelim in internal medicine and then three years of emergency medicine. So it was a 234 program because my wife was at Penn State where we did residency. So I had another year that I need to spend there. and, And then we both moved to New York City. So I did many months of internal medicine floors and HEMONC, ICU. So I did a lot of internal medicine. And my residency program actually had a combined EM, IM program. So nice. these crazy friends of mine did five years of residency and got double boarded. I don't know why. They all do emergency <laughs> medicine. Well, well, awesome for them. So you kind of threw a little wrench in your timeline. So now you're Mr. ER guy, and I'm sure you're an awesome ER doctor. Now, according to what I was reading, something happened, and now you're getting a master's in public policy at Princeton. How did you change your ship again from helping people out who have pulmonary embolisms and motor vehicle accidents and subarachnoid hemorrhages to public policy? Well, working in a hospital, especially an emergency department, it's like working in a repair shop of human bodies. And you see the same complications from diseases over and over again. So I was already a faculty at my hospital, practicing emergency medicine physician, and I was getting burnt out already. I was oh so God. young. Yeah. Right? No, um, yeah, you know, saying, we're young pups. We can't use the B word. We, I know. <laughs> right? You know, problems of chronic homelessness, problems of gun violence in our city. And, and I felt I just repaired patients, send them back out of the hospital, and they came in with the same stuff. 
this system is so broken. I convince my chair to let me take a year off and do a mid-career public policy program at Princeton. And no. he was so gracious because most chairs of departments would not allow you to do that. So, no. so I went, entered a full-time policy program. I actually worked on Friday nights in the emergency department and really understood how the health system works, how the health system is financed. I studied under a great professor, Professor Uwe Reinhardt, who was one of the leading healthcare economists in the world. Sadly, he passed away a few years ago, but he was great. He taught me about the complex system that we operate in. And that's something I never learned in medical school. And it was very informative later on in my career when I thought about design and how can we redesign the system that we work in. Well, then you did something. And like I said, I'm really proud of you. Like Vaughn, I mean, you do some cool things. So can you spend some time and talk about this? There was a, a magazine. It's called the Airstream Trailer. And the whole article is about how you wanted to bring back healthcare to underserved people. I believe it was in Philadelphia. Was this after Princeton? And, and can you explain what you did? Because it sounded awesome. I run this research group called the Health Design Lab, and we think a lot about how we can design better health for our communities. And often when you think of healthcare, it's a brick and mortar approach. Patients come to you in a hospital or clinic, but we rarely go out to the communities where patients live. And so I got inspired by watching some architects. They gave a presentation. These architects were from Kansas University. And they used an Airstream trailer, a vintage one. And for those who don't know what that is, they're just bright, shiny silver ones that have been around since the 1940s. So they bought an Airstream trailer and, and repurposed it as a way to engage with the community when they're doing new projects in their, in the neighborhoods. And I thought, well, we could do something like this around health. So we applied for a grant, got funding to buy an Airstream, we got a design grant, work with architects, and we used it as a way to bring this Airstream trailer out into some of the communities in Philadelphia that were hit really hard by the opioid epidemic. And part of what we did was it allows us to put it in a park, for example, and give a space where we could connect with people. So it's a thing called creative placemaking. And we wanted to understand what the needs of the community were and the narrative around the opioid crisis, the stigma around that. And it was truly transformative. During the pandemic, we actually used that Airstream, got repurposed, and we used it as a base camp for our COVID vaccine and testing sites That's that were awesome. very, very mobile. Right. So we're already used to going out into communities. And what we realize is that health is very local. So what happens in, you know, one section of LA where you're at is so different, even a half a mile from that neighborhood. And so we wanted to bring testing and vaccines to where people actually live. And so we were already used to working with community-based organizations. So we partnered with churches, we partnered with schools, with nonprofits to engage with the community where they're at. And so you could just walk from your house to get a test or get a vaccine. Wow. Now, are you, I know you have 20,000 things that you have your hands into. You think I could find you on one of these 
what's it called air on the airstream trailer nowadays doing some hands-on testing or vaccines or this time not permit or oh yeah all, all the time i actually transport the airstream with my subaru <laughs> so okay. yeah, we don't have a specific driving vehicle for it. So we do these pop-up vaccine clinics. One of my favorite yeah. ones was a yeah. event called Taco and Shots. So there's this great taco restaurant in Philadelphia called South Philly Barbacoa. Ben okay. and Christina Martinez are the owners. They're amazing. There was a there's actually a Netflix episode on them on called chef's table. It's one of my favorite okay. shows. So they feature Christina Martinez. Uh, she is undocumented from Mexico and she's a leader in that community. So we did a pop-up with her, put the Airstream right in front of her restaurant and gave out free vaccines and free tacos to anyone who got vaccinated. And she was br- able awesome. to bring in her community. Yeah. You know, and many people who work, you know, many uh, people from the Latino community who work yeah. in the restaurant industry came by, got their Johnson Johnson shot. Oh, I mean, that that is a touching story. I do love that. And it kind of also set me up because I think my timeline was a little backwards. But let's take a step back. The biggest question I wanted to know is Health Design Lab. You know, I told you to send me some articles. I could do some reading about it. It's really, really innovative. But I just don't know how to explain it in my words to my listeners. So what is Health Design Lab? Question mark. And the first question after that is going to be, who should look into it? And who would be the right person to maybe that's going to be in their future? Great question. It's taken me years to figure out how to describe ourselves. We're the best example or the best description is like we're like a test kitchen for the hospital. And so we kind of create new recipes for healthcare. So we work at this intersection of human centered design and healthcare. There's three aims of our lab. One is we teach design thinking to medical students. Uh, we do research, uh, design research in healthcare. So that can look like anything from bioprinting to 3D printing to working with architects to figure out how the built environment impacts burnout. And then we think about how we design healthier communities. So we try to go out into the community and develop design interventions to make Philadelphia healthier. Nice. So, so I guess who should look into it? And I was reading about what you do and you were actually teaching medical students how to think like designers. That's what was quoted. How do you teach a medical student to be a designer? It seems like I know they're not mutually exclusive, but what we were kind of making fun about the way we were just kind of raised in medical school, the way things are done. So who should look into it and how do you teach a med student to think like a designer? Who should look into it if you are applying to medical school and want to exercise some of your creative muscles in medical school? We offer this design thinking program that spans four years of medical school. Uh, if you are a researcher or practicing clinician and want to learn about design thinking, you could connect with us as well. You know, honestly, I made it up as I went along <laughs> thinking about how do you teach design to medical students. There wasn't a book out there on this. And so what Not I did yet. was, well, <laughs> so I wrote the book on it and <laughs> called I Health Design Thinking. <laughs> yeah. And I started reaching out to designers from all different disciplines, whether you're, it was like an architect, uh, industrial design, service design. I asked them, what the heck is design? What the heck is human-centered design? How can I apply it 
into the healthcare space. And as you know, Raj, healthcare is probably the most complicated industry out there. And, and some of the problems that we face, like emergency department overcrowding or how to discharge patients in a timely manner from the hospital, how to prevent readmissions. Yes. That's not something that we learn about in medical school or residency training. And what design thinking does is helps provide some principles and methods around solving complex problems. So it's not just about making things look pretty. Uh, <laughs> it's about really tackling hard problems and exercising your creative muscles to solve those problems. So, I mean, I think it's best understood when you could tell me what you did so people could understand. So what are some of your very proud accomplishments, you know, that you've done with health design lab? What did you see was a, a major problem, whether it's going to be insides of the, a, the billing or the clinical, give me some examples. So many examples here. Let's go with 3d printing. Okay. So like a test kitchen, we have tools like any other kitchen. And I went to South by Southwest, met a great guy, Matt Griffin, who works at Ultimaker. And they're like the Apple of 3D printing. And started talking with him about desktop 3D printing and what the applications were. So we, we bought a couple. He gave us one, actually. And we started experimenting of converting CAT scan and MRI images into physical anatomy. And so we started printing these things, showing them to different surgeons around our hospital and go, hey, would this be useful for you in planning for a surgery? And then we started doing research on that. And now we have a pretty robust research program on 3D printing in medicine. So super proud of that. It was, it was, it was very creative and we use it a lot. We teach our medical students to do it too. Another thing that I'm super proud of is how we as a lab work with colleagues at our hospital to respond to the pandemic, right? Everything from there was not enough testing going on. Remember remember a year ago, how hard it was to get a COVID test? Yeah. It took about like a week to get the results back. So we developed community testing sites. Uh, we did implemented rapid care tests in parking lots. And then we started distributing vaccines after the mass vaccination campaign. So after the mass vaccination campaigns were great for a lot of people, but it didn't reach all groups, right? There was certain groups that were left out. Uh, and these groups that we found were those who were undocumented, those who did not speak English, and many from black and brown communities who had lack of access or some distrust with the medical system. And so we had to be really creative to think about how can we co-design with the community to make a safe and accessible place for people to get testing and vaccines. I'm glad you brought that up because, you know, once again, I was being kind of a stalker. I was reading a couple of your interviews. A quote that you made in the magazine was that you felt that COVID, this is the quoted part, brought out the weakness in health design. And I thought that was a really powerful statement. You know what I mean? And I think you brought up some of the points there, but 
Is there anything else to that statement that you didn't mention already that was kind of like brought out because of the pandemic? I'm going to flip it back on you, Raj. I mean, what, <laughs> oh, no. what have you experienced? Because what I've experienced is yeah. we have a public health system that is razor thin and that has does not have the infrastructure that it needs. And we have a system that is not built to respond to a pandemic. We have a broken system that needs to be redesigned in so many ways. I mean, what happened in your ICU there? Wow. You know, I would say that if someone asked me what's the word that comes to my mind for the pandemic, it has to be humble. I'm so humbled by the pandemic. And I think that anytime you think you're ahead of this, this virus, you knew what to do, how to do it, it just was the wrong answer. It was the wrong turn. You know what I mean? And I'll just kind of elaborate the most on the patients I, I saw in the ICU. You know, if you told me that one day I'd be seeing patients who would be talking to me with their oxygen saturations in the high 70s, low 80s without intubating them, I would say you're making this up. And I think because of my own insecurities, we rushed in to put people on ventilators that maybe we should have done that right away. Yeah. And I think that one of the biggest flaws that jumps out to me is probably the most emotional is the loneliness that the patients had. And you shouldn't not put a patient in the ICU because of only their social aspects. But the minute you're in my ICU, there's no family, there's no friends. You'll be lucky there's an iPad and we get a hold of who you need to talk to. And once you're on the ventilator, Bond, it's sedation and paralytic. And you're lucky if you ever could leave that ICU, not even the hospital, just the ICU. So it was really emotional for me being there. And I think that when the pandemic first started, I was super duper scared. And, you know, going to my shifts in the ICU and county. But then, I don't know if you knew this, I got COVID. You know, I didn't know that. Yeah. I mean, oh my gosh. I really like, Hey, Bob, Rod here got COVID, you know, but my family got it. And oh. once I got COVID at that time when it's happening, there were just only two people, people with COVID and people who didn't get it yet, you know, yeah. it suddenly gave me this courage. And since that time I couldn't have enough ICU shifts. So I think that you're right. A lot of designs. I don't know even who to blame with the design problems a lot of just uh, things we we knew from treating acute respiratory distress in the, in the past just didn't come over to 2021, 2020, when we were dealing with COVID patients. So hopefully we learn from our mistakes. Did I answer yeah. my question pretty good? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Can you smell? You know, I never had the smell issues. And, you know, I was one lucky person. In fact, you know, who gave it to our family was my little girl that was born on Chasing the Cure. Uh, Sadie, my, my wife was doing some outdoor running and, you know, she's a, a newborn and she was the first one to get it. And it just kind of presented like a, a URI and we all got tested and there you go. Oh my goodness. Yeah. Is but, everyone okay? Um, everyone's totally okay. Great. And we're all vaxxed and boosted and third dosed and all that kind of good stuff. So of course Sadie can't, you know what I mean? But my, yeah. my, my, my kids did. So I'm happy for them. So back to it's my podcast, not yours, but thank you for <laughs> making me. I was going to cry on the freaking podcast, but um, I wanted to throw you a bone before we start talking about chasing the cure and all during our time when we were actually hanging out together, filming this book was in the works 
It's called health design thinking. Can you tell us about it? Health design thinking is like a recipe book for applying design thinking to healthcare. And I wrote it with Ellen Lupton, and she is really the brainchild of the book. She is a famous design author. She's a curator at Cooper Hewitt at Smithsonian Design Museum. It's the only museum in our country dedicated to design. I was a huge fan of hers. And it was literally like asking LeBron James, hey, do you want to write a book on basketball? And so... Nice analogy. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) She's famous in the design community. So she has a great way of democratizing design and making design accessible to non-designers. So she was my dream collaborator. We wrote the book. It launched right at the beginning of the pandemic. And during the pandemic, Ellen collected all these stories of how design was being used to respond to the pandemic. And we have a second edition already coming out. I just got my advanced copy in the mail this week and it'll be available to the public uh, February of 2021. And it's going to be a companion book to an exhibit she's launching at Kirby Hewitt Museum next month with Mass Design Group. So it's an exhibit on um, healthcare and design. So it's a subject that obviously is super important during this time. You know, this is going to be my favorite part. It's amazing how fast the time went, but I want to talk a little bit about our show, Jason the Cure. So when I see you now, and I know all these things about you, and I've always liked you as a friend being on the show, but you know, all the ma- these awesome accomplishments you've had, starting off where you did and where you are with everything, it's so amazing. But how did you get involved in Chasing the Cure? Where in your schedule do you have time to be part of a TV show? It was a cold call email from one of the producers. And I thought it was actually a joke. <laughs> and I shared it with my colleagues and go, is this a joke? And they go, no, I think this is real. You should probably respond. So I responded <laughs> and I actually did not want to do the show. Oh yeah! I didn't know that. Yeah, at all. <laughs> I did not want to. I did not want to do it. And I spoke a lot with my colleagues, and my family actually was very supportive. So they're like, "You should do this show." And I had a chance to talk to Ann Curry, who is the host, and she was so convincing. And and also, it was like a dream to work with her, as you know, Rod. She's just an amazing journalist. Mm-hmm. She's a spectacular human. Yeah, I I went there and I was still not convinced when even when we were L.A. filming because it was hard coming from Philly, right? I had to work a shift and, you know, on Wednesday, we would fly out to L.A., rehearse all day, go to table read, sleep in a hotel room, and then next day, rehearse, film the show, and then take a red eye back to Philadelphia and then... A lot of times, you know, working during the weekend. So yeah, so it was it was exhausting. It felt like I was in residency again. <laughs> um, you know, you intimidated me actually, Raj. Oh, yeah, that's yeah. A yeah. Did big I tell lie. you this? Yeah, you know, I have to smile. I'm always smiling. Uh, no, you know? no. When <laughs> I'm a little camera shy, and I froze up a lot in front of the camera. <laughs> I I was stressed out. That's like the most stressful thing going on live TV. And you were just odd. You were so comfortable being in front of the camera. That was like a little intimidating to me. I was I was super impressed by how articulate you were. You were able to, 
respond super quickly and sound very sophisticated. And I was oh. fumbling with words and I was like a deer in headlights, man. <laughs> that was my, my next question, which was literally, how were you in front of the camera? Were you nervous? And I was going to say that one thing is I, I like copying you too. And I think I was very subtle about it. One thing I've always loved about you, we were, we were on the couch and I hope someone could watch the footage. You would always pretend to write. And, <laughs> hey, that's um, my trick, man. <laughs> and I got to tell you, like no one ever noticed it, but I kind of looked over. I'm like, what is this mother writing? There's nothing to write. And you would just like sketch a, like a square and <laughs> start laughing that from the <laughs> of the, the film or like, oh, look at Dr. Koo, you know? So I started, give me that folder. <laughs> I want the folder. <laughs> it's a nervous tick that I have. It makes you look smarter when you have a pen and you're writing stuff down and you put that pen to your face. And yeah, I loved it. I remember like, you know, after we do our seg, we'd go off stage. And the first thing that you tell me is always like, dude, why have another segment? I don't want to go back on. I'm done. I'm <laughs> done. And at first I thought, you know, but you know, me, Sheila, everyone, I mean, I mean, I wouldn't mind getting a little more airtime. I'll be honest with you. I can go for some airtime, you know? And I just thought you're BSing me that you didn't want airtime. But you really didn't want air <laughs> No, I didn't. It was petrifying. I would be sweating so much and I would think, I can't do this. This is this is way too stressful to me. And that's why I looked at you and Sheila. Uh, and you guys were so calm, and cool, James, and collective. And James, James. yeah. James wasn't James, on the couch with us most of the time. He was doing the intro and he was just oh, he was a pro. I I met him when we had to go for tryouts and I thought, yeah. who is this guy? He's like so handsome and articulate. He's a handsome guy. He looks like Denzel Washington, but the doctor version of him. Yeah. And he's like, it, that was intimidated and, and, by him. He, so he did the podcast with me. He has the, the, the James Pickney voice. You know I mean, there's like all of a sudden you'll be just having some cock and bull together. And then he's on the mic. Well, you know, Dr. Raj. I'm like, well, where did the, where did the, the sexy voice come from? All of a sudden, you know? Yeah. I, I felt, I felt I did not belong, but I think one of the drivers and motivations yeah. for doing the show is how do you take very complex subjects, complex diseases and simplify them? And how do you storytell? How do you mm -hmm. tell the story of the patients who bravely came on the show? And how do you make really complex things understandable for a broader public? And yeah. I think the dissemination of medical knowledge, scientific knowledge, communication of health information is so critical. And we saw that during the pandemic, right? We yeah. did not do a great job around medical information and spreading that. I think we could have done a better job at storytelling, a better job at communication. There's a lot of confusion out there. And what the show taught me is in this medium of television, which is a very powerful medium of how to tell stories effectively. And yeah. you did a great job on that. Oh. You do a great job on that. Um, you do you that in so many different venues, right? Podcasts and your medical oh. education series and your books. No, you're so good. I wish I had a Thank teacher you. like you in medical school. Thank you. No, no, get my back on this. I think that at the show, I wish went over for one more season, right when the pandemic started, I think we could have made a huge difference during the pandemic. I always feel we got cheated on that. 
Oh, 100%. The show was all about medical crowdsourcing. And that's yeah. what happened during the pandemic. It was yeah. global crowdsourcing. You know, yeah. I remember we had a conversation early on the pandemic, what was going on. I spoke with doctors in New York City. Researchers yeah. were sh open sourcing their research findings. And it was crowdsourcing on a global scale that we've never yep. had before. No, and my, my take-home message, what I learned from Jason and Cure is that communication between the doctors and other people. That was the, the main, you know, it wasn't us being like, wow, me and you and James and Sheila are the smartest people. It was the fact that we knew how to reach out and communicate. We had a great team behind us. That I felt was the biggest weakness in healthcare, you know? So let me ask you this. I got to ask you a couple more before I let you go. What was your favorite guest or your best moment on the TV show? Raj, you know, there's no favorite guests. All, all the patients were the best. I'd say, well, who's your favorite kid, right? Oh, but, well said. Uh, Everyone loves Bond now. That's how you get the big clap. <laughs> you know, right? One of my favorite moments was uh, Deborah and Delaney, the mom and daughter from Alaska. Yes. And they had this rare condition called Wahlberg Sonati. And there were, you know, one of the symptoms was that they were actually going blind. And they had reached out to so many different doctors, could not get diagnosis. And then what happened on the show was they did whole genome accent sequencing. And we were able to find the point mutation that was causing their symptoms. And I remember it was like at four o'clock in the morning, there was a Zoom conference call with the Italian researchers who actually discovered the disease on the day that the show was airing. So it was craziness and we were able to tell them. And I remember the sense of relief that they had, even though there wasn't a cure, but that they had a name for what was giving them these symptoms and it was no longer a mystery. So uh, they got me kind of choked up and they were such yeah. a, they're such a, they're so cute. I, I no, love them. I, you know, I think, you know, James and Sheila and myself, you always mentioned Deborah and Delaney and you know, that scene you just described with the phone calls. I remember it was kind of like the, the, the beginning of like those Indiana Jones movies where the planes going to the different cities, they're connecting it. I, that was, that was awesome. Totally. Totally. Like, we're part of something really, really special. So my last two fun questions for you are going to be, <laughs> why Why were you always the favorite on the show? Why did everyone love you, Vaughn? Because I remember me and James and Sheila would have these awesome ideas during the behind the scenes and no one really cared, but if you said one little thing that was, was okay, Vaughn, you were the favorite, dude. 100% <laughs> false. <laughs> And that's probably why, probably why, because I was quiet. And then when I did speak every once in a while, people thought it was important. So yeah, but that's 100% false. <laughs> and I, and the last one is, uh, tell me about the tennis shoes. Is that your trademark? There were a picture I saw of you with some Air Jordans. I was kind of jealous because they were pretty cool. Air, Air Jordans, not tennis shoes, man. Yeah. Oh, fine. Make me feel bad. Yes, there weren't tennis shoes. But yes. Tell me about the shoes. I, I love Air Jordans. They are my, they've become my shoe of the hospital. So when I go into work, I wear Air Jordans and I, I'm a little bit of a sneakerhead. They, sneakers are great because they're, democratizing well if you can afford them <laughs> you know you're not democratizing <laughs> everyone but yeah. famous people athletes wear these uh amazing shoes and then the average kid on the street can wear the same exact shoe 
which is cool. And I love the design of the shoes. There's so much creativity in the design and it adds a little bit of spice to our normal outfit of scrubs. Yeah. You know, we wear pajamas to work and I like to go, Hey, I'm going to show a little bit of my personality through my Air Jordan. So I love Air Jordans. I have multiple pairs. I'm, I'm always looking at my sneaker apps to find cool retro Air Jordans. Well, I think that's one thing we have in common. You know, my, one of my the favorite athlete, if not person is Michael Jordan and some of the amazing motivational quotes that he uses, but no, I just remember you with your shoes. You know what? I thought you looked cool. And I saw a picture of you on an interview. You had this awesome suit on, but then you got the shoes. And <laughs> I like it. I think it does express your personality well. But okay, Bond, don't cry right now. But it looks like we're almost at the end of the podcast right here. So is there any website or people want to get, you know, want to join Health Design Lab or want to know more about you? Give me your social media stuff. Go totally, for it. totally. I am on both Twitter and Instagram. So on Twitter, I'm at B-O-N-K-U. It's just my name. And on Instagram, at D-R-B-O-N-K-U. So I tweet about design and healthcare and you could reach out to me there. That's awesome. And you know what? This was a great reunion. I totally love you. I miss you. Thank you so much for being on my podcast today, dude. You're the best. Thanks, Raj. And don't forget to rate Raj's podcast, leave a comment (laughs) on Apple Podcasts, and tell others about it. Share an episode with a friend or colleague. All right, everyone. I'll see you next time on the Dr. Raj Podcast. Thanks. Thanks for listening. This has been a production of Ars Longa Media. Our producers are Madison Linden and Chris Brightigan. Our executive producer is Dr. Patrick Beeman. This podcast is for educational purposes only and not intended for medical advice. Ars Longa, Vita Brevis.